0: many of the contributions I've made to education and to social justice have involved the capacity to learn from individuals, to learn from what individual speakers have to tell us.
1: Welcome back to Cognitive Revolution. I'm Cody Commerce, and this is my show about the personal side of the intellectual journey. Okay, so I am going to do something a little different this week. Um, at the end of 2020, I had a conversation with a man named William Labov, and he's one of my favorite academics of all time, uh, an incredible linguist. You'll hear more about that later on. But basically, uh, you know, so uh, William, God bless him, is 93, and my goodness— the guy's still got it. Uh, he's working on all this stuff. You hear him talking about this, that. He, he won a rewa- an award technically uh, early in 2020, but it was presented, you know, because pandemic and all, in uh, January 2021 called the Talcott Parsons Prize, which is, uh, you know, one of the most, it, just, it goes, it, yeah, it's one of these awards uh, that is supposed to be on the level of the Nobel in one's field right it's, it's that sort of uh, idea and so it's it's it goes to you know just the top of the top of the top people in all of the social sciences um, and you know he, William's still got stuff going on and, and it's it's incredible I loved talking to him but you know I, I, listening back to the, the Raw interview I, it just wasn't uh, you know it just wasn't um, it just wasn't quite right for releasing on its own so I wanted to try something a little bit different, kind of as an experiment. And basically, right after that interview, I just sort of sat down and off the cuff, talked about what I, the reason why I really love uh, Bill Labov and his and his work and um, tried to touch on what makes me so excited uh, about him. And, and um, so that's the sort of main thing. And then throughout that, I'm going to intersperse some of the remarks that he made, um, you know, sort of reorganize them so you can hear from him uh, in his own words and that sort of stuff. And uh, also, uh, uh, he was kind enough to send me um, some of the the original audio from his from his uh, uh, you know field interviews back in the day. So I wanted to put all that uh, into something that I thought would be uh, unique and interesting and. Um, Uh, just have an opportunity for you to hear from him but in a way that combines it with the things that I that have drawn me to him in his work Um, so hopefully uh, you find this sort of format uh, interesting and um, uh, that you enjoy the uh, the monologue dialogue here so without further ado here is Me and, mostly, William LeBoff. So basically, the setup for the the story is that... So if you go back to the 50s and 60s, so this is during the cognitive revolution uh, after which this, this podcast is named. So basically, one of the key things that happened then was that you have this guy emerging on the scene... Named Noam Chomsky, and Noam Chomsky uh, basically. So he is by far the most important linguist of the second half of the 20th century, and in many ways, the history of the study of language in the second half 20th century is just Chomsky coming in and bowling over everyone uh, who came before him, and just instantiating his own paradigm. And so he basically he just he just came in and like Thanos like snapped. And everything that came before him perished, and then he just set up his own reign. So, Chomsky basically, the, the fundamentals of, of, of his ideas were that language should be studied formally, meaning mathematically, meaning breaking it down into these component parts. And uh, he had a bunch of different ideas, but the, the main one is sort of this idea of the uh, generative grammar which means that, uh, you know, so how do you construct linguistically adequate sentences? And he basically came up with this idea about how we have this innate part of us that's basically built to do syntax and constructing language and, and all this sort of stuff. But one of the weird things about Chomsky's approach to study language, and this is noted by pretty much everyone who's ever, you know, sort of, touched on chomsky as a historical figure is that he didn't actually in a sense study language basically the way he approached studying language is that he would come up with a sentence uh his most famous is colorless green ideas sleep furiously and he would look at this sentence and be like wow you know so this sentence is grammatically correct that is its syntax is uh is is correct Uh, but it semantically doesn't mean anything. It means, like, it's the opposite of mean something. Colorless green ideas sleep fiercely. Those are all contradictory ideas, and yet you can put them together and form a legitimate sentence. But before Chomsky said that sentence, literally no one had ever said that. The point is, is that Chomsky's ideas of language were based off of him and his buddies sitting around and coming up with a sentence and being like, is that a legit sentence? And then be like, look at each other and be like, yeah, that's totally a legit sentence they weren't actually listening to people use language and the person who came along and realized that the study of language should include how people actually use language was none other than uh william Labov, and uh he actually has this really interesting story so he studied he studied uh at harvard as an undergraduate uh graduating in 1948 And I think he studied, uh, what is it, English and philosophy, Um, maybe a little bit of chemistry as well. And then after that, he went into the family business, which was making ink. And he became an industrial chemist in his family business and did this for over a decade. He, uh, he, descri- he he describes it in this the the book that he's working on and everything but like basically he'd sit there and you'd you'd put paint on things you'd leave it out in the sun for like 6 months and then 6 months later if the paint still looks good on the car or whatever it is then it was a great coat of paint and if the the paint didn't look good well then that batch it was a shitty batch of paint that's what he did for like 10 years and then um Beginning in 1960, he, uh, for reasons I don't actually know, decides, you know what? Okay, I am going to go and study language, which he does uh, at um, at Columbia. Yeah, Columbia is where he got his master's and PhD, graduating, I believe, in 1964. And then he goes on to become a professor at Penn. Uh, but basically, what? William Lebov did what Bill did was that he, his first study was of um, a group of people that he uh, were, were close to where he lived in Mar- in Martha's Vineyard, and so basically he went and he talked to all these people. I believe he was asking them specifically about what their concept of success is, and he just basically got them talking on on uh, different points and trans uh, and oh, and here here's this really interesting point, so. There was actually a technological innovation that allowed him to talk to people and then go back and uh, trans- transcribe and understand and dig into the nuance of what they said and how they said it and that technological in- innovation was the tape recorder which i think is really interesting as an example of technology driving academic research right because one of the reasons why it was really difficult before Bill's work to study language that was actually spoken was because there's so much going on in real time. You can't really note it down. You you can a little bit uh, and in certain ways, but you can't get all of it. You can't go back and, and and get it again, not in the same way that it was originally given to you. So you can't truly get a naturalistic uh, you know, sort of perspective on language. And the tape recorder, just by being able to turn it on and set it there and go back and listen to it ad infinitum when you're done, totally changed that. And so I think it's interesting how that was such a clear example of um, te- technology driving ideas. And it makes me think about, you know, in my own research and in my own sort of interests in, in academia, what are the technological advances? What is, what is the tape recorder of today for the things that I'm interested in? I haven't. I haven't figured out exactly what they are yet, uh, and you kind of have to figure out something that maybe not everyone immediately appreciates. But I think that's an interesting question to ask oneself. At any rate, basically, so uh, the as I as I alluded to earlier. Basically, what uh, Bill does with this is develop this field called sociolinguistics. And this is the idea that in order to understand language and the way it works, you don't just come up with these abstract sentences and these rules for how words fit together and all this sort of stuff that was the Chomsky approach to language. But you actually have to look at language as a social phenomenon that takes place in a particular context for a particular purpose between particular people and look at it as it actually uh, takes place. And this was the core of uh, what Bill built up in in his work. And as I've mentioned, he uh, is currently working on uh, this this book and it's hilarious because he sent me the sort of, uh, you know, a preview of it and I read through a good bit of it. And Bill, God bless him, at 92, he can basically recite entire passages that he's written from this. And they're good, strong passages. They're not feeble in any way. You wouldn't think that this is someone, uh, you you know, uh, in in their 90s writing this. I thought that was so impressive. The other thing, which maybe right about here, I will splice in some examples of this.
0: Well, if I make a tracing of my own pattern, I started off doing a study of sound change taking place in Martha's Vineyard, a small island off New England, where I noticed that there was a tendency for people to say right instead of right, and down instead of down. This centralization of diphthongs was put forward as a variable that affected groups of people. And one of the members of those groups was a fisherman named Donald Poole. He was one of the most striking people who, who was affected by this new sound change. And uh, now I find myself some 70 years later, quoting what Donald Poole himself had to say about it. He said, I asked him the question, what is a successful man? And he said, I don't have to go fishing. So I could, as long as I draw the breath of life, all the way down there at six in the morning, doing all I can, as best as I can. A man with a New England conscience can't sit still.
1: He has this, he has this incredible. So, so here's one thing: I don't really like phonology. Phonology is the study of the sounds of language. I don't think that's what's interesting about language. I think what Chomsky was talking about is the interesting stuff of language. How do you... What's the rules for fitting things together? And how do things gain meaning based off of those rules? As a cognitive scientist, that to me is way more interesting than like, well, what are the different sounds between, you know, English in Seattle, English in New England, and then some random language like Hungarian? Yeah, I'm way more interested in the syntax and semantics than phonology, but Bill is, in some sense, a phonologist. That is the main thing that he's, he's studied. Why is that? Well, one of the reasons is that he just has this fantastic natural disposition for it where he just relates to the sounds of language like, you know, a musician relates to harmony and melody or the way a photographer relates to stills or a, 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 a movie director relates to scenes. There's just something about it that jives with him. You can tell in the way that he talks and in how he can quote uh, at length these people that he's interviewed. And um, he kind of, it's almost like, you know, he takes on this theatrical um, more than his own self uh, ability once, once he starts getting into these, these voices and these sounds. That was really fun to see. Um, but yeah, so, okay, so the way that I discovered his work was that, so, okay, I was, you know, probably digging around and just all of this stuff and I clicked on sociolinguistics. Okay, what's sociolinguistics? You know, probably on Wikipedia or something like that. And then, you know, when you click on that, it tells you about William Labov. Okay, but so then he has this famous paper got a little copy of it here that I'm going to pull up. It's called The Logic of Non-Standard English. And, okay, let's see. So in in the language, so basically, okay, so here's what's happening. So this is the uh, late 60s, early 70s. Uh, So uh, sort of back end of the civil rights movement. And in educational psychology, there was this problem which was uh, so in you know certain school districts and in certain schools and all that sort of stuff, there was this disparity forming, which was that uh, the black kids were not doing as well as the white kids, and post civil rights were like, okay, yeah, this is it, let's let's solve this. this is an issue we don't want this to have, we don't want this to happen. Uh, what are we gonna do about this? And so the there was a central claim at the time by educational psychologists, which was uh, a linguistic solution. They were saying that look, if you listen to the way these children, uh, the uh, black children, are talking, then uh, clearly that is not uh, that is not the the language that's used in the classroom. So maybe what's happening, this is, this is what they submitted as their hypothesis, was that um, they don't have the linguistic wherewithal to be able to discuss, to articulate, to talk about the kinds of things that are going on in the classroom. Therefore, what we should do is uh, make them talk not like they naturally do, but like how the white kids talk. And so this was the sort of mainstream thinking at the time. And then William Labov comes along and he writes this phenomenal essay called the, Language, uh, the Logic of Non-Standard English. And basically just kicks the ass of that idea all the way down the block, step by step by step. And I think maybe today, if we read this paper, uh, it, it might seem weird that the argument is like, okay, you know, black children have logic too. Is You could kind of read the paper as making that argument. I think in 2020, we would be like, okay, that's a little bit of a condescending uh, argument to make. But read in the context of when it actually uh, came out, it was, I think, a fantastic... Uh, and progressive and uh, really uh, enormous insight uh, that the reason it wasn't an an enormous insight is because literally what the paper is is um, like 50% of it at least is just a transcript of one of these uh, conversations uh, with this guy named Larry who was a I believe uh, you know, a member of some gang in Harlem, he was 16 years old. And basically, the way the paper is laid out is that you have these, um, uh, these dialogues between Larry and the interviewer, which I'm planning on getting my hands on, and if I do, I will insert them right here. But you don't really know if it's a God or not. Nobody really knows that. That's true. Nobody.
0: That's true, that's true. But.
1: Just saying that there is a guy, what color is it? white or black? He'd be white, man. Why? Why? I'll tell you why. Because the average whitey out here got everything, you dig? Know? Mm-hmm. And then he ain't got shit, you know? Mm-hmm. You understand? So um, for um, for that to happen, you know there ain't no black God that's doing that bullshit.
0: <laughs> yeah, I got to go do for
1: that, boy. Hey, that's quite a bit this man.
0: And the second person that I'm introducing is from a very physical and social distance, a fellow named Larry Hawthorne. Larry Hawthorne was an African-American of 16 years old who lived in Harlem. And when I first heard him speak, I was struck by the power and the fluency of his rhetoric. And at the same time, I was confronted with a social movement among educational psychologists, which declared that the non-standard English of African-Americans was not a language and was not capable of use for further learning. And listening to Larry Hawthorne talk as an individual, I found that my most powerful weapon in counteracting this notion of educational psychologist is to quote Larry Hawthorne so people could hear what this individual had to say. the one example that was quite striking and is still present in my current representation of Larry is an argument he had with our interviewer, a guy named Casey. And Casey said to him, is God black or white? And Larry said, I couldn't say. But do don't nobody know, is there a God? And the interviewer said, but supposing there is a God, would he be black or white? Larry thought of it and said, well, I couldn't really say, but if there was a God, he'd be white man. The interviewer said, white? Why do you say that? Why, said Larry. I'll tell you why. You see the way it is that the whitey got everything and we ain't got shit. Now you know it ain't no white God. You know it ain't no black God doing that bullshit. So the article I wrote about the situation in Harlem foregrounded this quotation from Larry Hawthorne. And many people asked me to reprint that, his conversation. And maybe a few hundred times the article, which argued against this position of educational psychologist, like a great many people asked to reprint the article, but more people wanted to hear Larry Hawthorne. And I found that as an individual, he could convey the impression of logical thinking more clearly than the various rambling denunciations of people who were opposed to his way of thinking
1: and um right so what happens in that is that uh basically bill looks at that and says well look so first of all um let's first of all let's talk about the way white people talk and he juxtaposes that with you know some guy probably not unlike me who, you ask him a question, and he just goes on about God knows what for paragraphs and paragraphs and paragraphs. It never actually gets to a fucking point. Uh, and uh, he looks at it and he's like, so first of all, there's literally no logic uh, in this. I don't, I don't have the, the transcript uh, uh, right in front of me, but base- you can imagine... Just imagine some guy and, you know, uh, some white dude in in a college seminar you've had sometime. he just goes on, you're like, what the fuck is he he talking about? He does not need to be, you know, this, right? That is kind of what, um, in a sense, educational speak trains us to sound like. And his first point is like, look, there's nothing great about this. There's nothing especially logical about that. Uh, And that's not a very effective form of communication. And this is true not even just for some average person, but lots of smart, you know successful academics. You wouldn't look at the way they talk and say, that's a great basic form of communication. And then so he compares this to what Larry is saying. And there's all this stuff that's got, um, first of all, it's insanely concise. It is getting the point across. Immediately, there's not all this wandering around and saying, "Well, you know, if you think about it from the perspective of, you know, it's kind of like I, I, I could imagine how this." There's none of that. It's literally this is the, this is the, the fact. This is the, this is the premise. This is the conclusion we're driving from. This is how it, this is how it is, and so it actually resembles logical language much more directly than, uh, for lack of a better term, the, the sort of, you know, standard white people speak of the time that they were that they were looking at. And um, uh, basically, he just goes through point by point, says, look, boom, here's this, boom, here's that. And there's all this amazing stuff in there of um, breaking down the language as it was actually spoken and just turning the bullshit um, uh, assumptions of these educational psychologists on its head. Uh, And I read that paper when that... uh, not when it first came out. I was not born when it first came out. When I just first came across it, and I was like, "Wow, this is so cool!" And so, at any rate, um, it was uh, it was a really a, a joy for me to to talk to 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 Bill, and uh, it was really cool to be able to you know see some of his perspective on this, and uh, uh, certainly I I appreciated uh, you know his mind, different stages of his his life, and I'm glad he is still. Doing well, he's certainly still thriving. He's still productive. Hell, he's probably more productive than I am uh, at this point. Uh, But uh, yeah, I I wanted to just go through and 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 uh, talk about his work as a linguist, identifying the social context of language, um, turning undue assumptions on their head. And if you get a chance, do go read this paper if it sounds of interest to you uh, because it's just such a cool piece of academic work. Right, okay, so what is the larger, what is the larger implication of this paper? I think it's more than just what it was in the early 70s, which, oh, you know, uh, just because black people talk a certain way, you know, right, it's not, that right, at the time that was a useful conclusion. What's the conclusion for us though? Uh, and I think it's this, I think it's much more generalizable. I think. It is an argument against the assumption, which I think a lot of us, tend, just as humans, tend to hold implicitly, that just because somebody talks differently than me, it means they think differently than me. The lesson of Labov and, and the logic of non-standard English is that this isn't true. Just because someone talks differently doesn't mean that they think different than me. And uh, I, I think there's a similar form of this, which is to you know, sort of interpret any signal that this person, someone who doesn't share a cultural background with you or, or t- talk the same way or go about things in, in the same way, that we often interpret this as a sign of their incompetence or stupidity or even malice, right? And I think uh, that what this paper specifically should give us pause to reflect on is that our... Prejudices on this front, uh, even when they're not as overt as they were in the case of the educational psychologists against black children here, are usually not warranted, and there's almost always more to the story. And we can be very wrong about about uh, these sort of things with our gut feelings. And I think that's doesn't matter what decade we're talking about. That is a worthwhile notion there. And this paper by William Lavov just spelled it out. In such a cool, and, and important, and clear, and incisive, and impactful way. So that was my conversation slash spliced monologue uh, about what I find fascinating uh, about Bill and his work. So I hope you enjoyed that. Uh, if you thought this format was interesting, if you liked this sort of thing, if you thought it was a neat addition to the the kind of uh, you know just sort of standard conversations that i usually do on here i'd love to hear uh your perspective on that and what you liked or didn't like um so do feel free to write me um my email is cody.commerce at gmail.com um i'd also like to give a special thank you to bill's partner jillian sankoff uh, who was very helpful in orchestrating and conducting this interview uh so uh thank you very much to her if you want to connect with me on other places, you can do so on Twitter at Cody Commerce, through my newsletter at codycommerce.com newsletter. Um, and uh, I just want to say thanks for listening. I really do appreciate it, and uh, it's, it, it, it means a lot to, to have you listen on here. If you, if you enjoy the show, I'd appreciate if you subscribe, and uh, you know, especially if you give me a rating on iTunes, as it helps other people find the show. So and at any rate, uh, thank you for listening, and I'll be back here next week with another episode of Cognitive Revolution.